Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26 will be our text this uh, uh, evening, though. Let's just read verses 12 through 14 as our reading today. And let's read together and let's read aloud. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for giving us the opportunity to learn of you and to grow more in you. And that is our desire tonight, and and we pray that you would anoint us and bless us with your Holy Spirit. uh, Pour out your Spirit upon us, Lord, in, in such a wonderful and mighty way to encourage us, to exhort us, to challenge us, and to equip us that we may do those things that will indeed bless and honor you. And may we be attentive, Lord, mind, soul, spirit. May we be attentive to everything you have for us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Nothing could have motivated the disciples of Jesus to obedience more than to know that he was going to return just as they saw him leave. This, of course, is what we saw last time in the previous section of Acts chapter 1. And it brought to mind a question. Did they begin to put things together in their hearts and in their minds as they saw Jesus ascend into heaven? Were they beginning to consider some things that they had learned throughout their study of the Scriptures? For they saw that He left in a cloud. It was a cloud that received Him. Could it have been that cloud of God's glory, which was the symbol of the presence and favor of God as in the Old Testament times? When oftentimes, of course, the cloud of, of God's presence was not only about them, but it was, uh, it was God Himself in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that, that He would lead them. The words of the two men in white apparel couldn't have been clearer. They said, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw Him go into heaven. Were they putting things together? The promise that the Messiah would return in all of His glory and splendor. As they saw Him leave, so would they see Him return. He was taken up. He will come again. Jesus is returning and so it's time to get going. It's time to start doing what Jesus says. And Jesus said, wait for the promise of the Father. 
His second coming was their motivation to obey Jesus, to wait for that promise of the Father. And, and, and it brings again to mind another question. What is our motivation today? What is our motivation today? What motivates us to obedience? What motivates us to pray and to read and to study and to trust in God's Word? The disciples had to wait. It isn't for us to have to wait. The Spirit has been given. The Spirit has been poured out upon the church. The Holy Spirit has, has, has been poured out and He's ours for the asking. Perhaps I should ask this. What is our response to the Lord's promised return? You see, if we don't believe that He's coming again, what motivates us then? So this is a very valid situation here that, that, that this is going to uh, encourage us then to realize that if the Lord says He's coming again, then He's coming again and we should do those things uh, that He says. This is very uh, pure, clear, and simple. And I wanted to begin there as we entered into this uh, next section of, of Acts chapter 1. Because I want to focus your attention on three things that stand out in the disciples' response to Christ's ascension and promised return. It is a motivation. It is something that allows us the opportunity to latch on to something that God has said, that Christ has said, and that is going to happen. And so it should draw us closer to Him. It should draw us closer to what He has to say. Three things uh, that I want you to see here. First of all, their obedience to receive the Spirit. Their obedience to receive the Spirit. Secondly, prayer to remain steadfast. The prayer of these disciples to remain steadfast. And thirdly, that they were scripturally based to replace, to replace a successor. To one of the apostles. These are the things that we will see in chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 today. But I, but I want you to be focused upon this particular thought. That they saw Jesus leave. And they were reminded that he was going to come again. Does that do something for you? Does that do something to you to get you to act upon the things that God has commanded His people? When we consider their obedience to receive the Spirit, look at verses 12 and 13 again. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had returned, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. And of course, one of those apostles was missing and no longer there. One Judas Iscariot. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told his disciples to stay stay and to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit arrived. Again, verse 49, which we've covered already a couple of last couple of weeks. Behold, Jesus said, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. 
Here in Acts chapter 1, He tells them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, and then you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It was important for the disciples to wait because the Holy Spirit couldn't come until Jesus was back in heaven. Remember that we saw this as well last time, John 16, verse 7, where Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Notice, Jesus had to ascend. He had to go back into heaven. Why? So that the Helper would come. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. It would be the Holy Spirit who would give them the power then to be witnesses to the world. And so their obedience was essential. It was necessary. Their obedience was necessary. So they journeyed a little more than, a, uh, than the half mile, which, by the way, was the Sabbath day walk that was allowed. Uh, from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley. Those of you who have gone to Israel, those who may be going to Israel in November will experience this particular walk. We walk from the Mount of Olives right up into the city of, um, of Jerusalem. And, and, uh, and, and it's, you, you can see how, how close it is. Uh, it's described here as a Sabbath day walk. We'll get into the distance here in just a moment. But it is a relatively short distance. It's thought that the distance of 2,000 cubits, or about 3,000 feet actually, uh, was determined by the distance allowed the children of Israel between themselves and the Ark of the Covenant at the passage of the Jordan. If you go all the way back to the book of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 4, you see this particular distance uh, described for us. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure, do not come near it, that you may know the, the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And so it was the distance then that the Israelites needed to walk in order uh, to worship the Lord. If they were going to come worship the Lord when the, when the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant was set out in, in the wilderness, then that approach was that distance. Now they could only go that far when it was uh, crossing uh, the Jordan. But the point of the matter is that it dealt with worship. It, uh, the significance of this for the disciples typifies their obedience as well to the ordinance of the Lord for the sake of worship. Where they would meet uh, would be the very place that the Spirit would come upon them. So their walk of 2,000 uh, meters, uh, or I should say 2,000 cubits, was, was not insignificant. It, it, there, there was a significance to it, more than we ever could think, because... It, 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 in their minds, of course, if we are aware of the things that the Word of God is teaching us, reminds us, hey, this is the distance that they were to keep. But to approach, they would walk that distance to come to the Ark of the Covenant or to come to offer their, uh, their sacrifices unto the Lord. These disciples walked and then they would wait all the while they would be worshiping. Folks, I think that there's, a, there's a, a pattern here that we don't want to take lightly. There's a pattern here that we want to consider very carefully and, 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 and circumspectly, as it were, in our own lives as Christians, that we are in a walk with the Lord. The Bible teaches that, that we are to walk in the Spirit, we're to walk uh, as unto the Lord and, and not unto, uh, unto the flesh or unto man. We walk, uh, it, it, it describes 
the Christian life. Our Christian life is a walk. But, but there's times when we have to wait. There are times when we have to sit still before God, listen to what He's saying to us, respond to what He's saying to us. And all the while, in the midst of our walking and in the midst of our waiting, we are worshiping the Lord, or we should be worshiping the Lord. And we should never separate the idea of worship from our walk or worship from our waiting. And anything we are to do is to give glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to give glory and honor to the God who made us, the God who created us, the God who gave us everything that we have so that we might be His witnesses. And so that's another aspect of it. If you're keeping tabs of all the W's, we walk, we wait, we worship, we witness, and so on and so forth. You know, these are things to remind us of, of, of our responsibilities and, uh, and the things that we are accountable to as believers in Jesus Christ. And by the way, this aspect of worshiping was not uh, separated from us uh, at the end of the Gospel of Luke. If you remember in verses 52 and 53, we are told that they worshiped Him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. And, and I, could just, I can just imagine, I can just see that with the difference between between those who were just offering sacrifices, you know, almost, almost in a routine way, uh, and, and those who were truly in the temple worshiping and praising God, was a tremendous, that there was a tremendous difference about it. And even much more after they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. After they received the blessing and the outpouring of the Spirit, it, must, it had to have been significant, the difference between those who were just offering sacrifices for the sake of offering sacrifices and those who were truly worshiping God. And so while the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit, I, I, I have to believe that they didn't just stay in that upper room all those days that Jesus said, wait, they were there to wait, certainly. But it tells us here at the end of Luke that they went in and continually in the temple they were praising and blessing God. So, so that room then just served as a meeting place for their fellowship and their devotions and their waiting upon the Lord to come to them. It certainly had to be a large room because uh, it, it would be accommodating uh, about 120 people. And uh, we need to ask who was there? Who was there? Well, it's been said that the attendees were, uh, and I quote, a crowd of failing, faithless, faulty, and frayed individuals. That sounds about right. That sounds like just about every church that I've ever been to. This one included. No, I'm just kidding. Well, well let's, let's admit it, okay? Uh, no, what church is perfect? And, and at the same time, when we come down to the nitty-gritty, who isn't frayed? Who isn't failing or faithless? And, 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 and struggling, you know, with, with faults and things. You know, that's why we come to church, so that we can confess our sins. And He's faithful and just to forgive us. And then He fills us and gives us new vision, new hope through, through His Word, which is not new. I mean, I mean it's, uh, not, He doesn't give us new revelations, but he, he gives us vision so that we might do those things that God wants us to do. And His Word becomes alive and it's like it's just fresh as, as ever. Why? So that we can realize that we can overcome those things through Jesus Christ. You see, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We have to believe that. We have to believe that by faith, that we, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, you know, but this is, uh, this is who was in that crowd that day. I mean, just think about this. Peter, who denied Jesus Christ three times. John and James, the sons of thunder, 
who asked for special seats in the kingdom with Mama's help. Y'all remember that, right? Thomas, the doubter. Matthew, the hated tax collector. Simon, the zealot. Anytime you see the word zealot, just think of terrorist. To the Romans, the zealots were terrorists. And even Jesus' half-brothers, in verse 14, when we get there, they had scoffed at him. They thought he was crazy. But they were there. That's just a small list. There would be 120 total. And not one was a perfect performer. But all were dependent believers. They believed. And they knew that they had to be dependent upon the Lord and not upon themselves. That should encourage us all. Because no matter what we struggle with, guess what? We need to be dependent upon the Lord. But first we must believe. We must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And I think that we need to come to grips with that particular phrase from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We have to believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And these people, these 120, were diligently seeking the Lord. And before the Holy Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost, what was necessary then to take place? Uh, I'm, you know, I want you to think about the question. What was necessary to take place before the Spirit would come upon them at Pentecost? Well, there was a need. There was a tremendous need for unity and for prayer. There was a tremendous need for unity and for prayer. And that brings us to our second point. That, they're, that they pray to remain steadfast. But they also prayed to be in unity. You see, in verse 14 of our text, it says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So that was just a continuation of, of, the, of the verses that told us who was there as far as the, the disciples. And then, of course, later on we we find a, a, a verse that tells us that there were 120 or about 120. Which brings to mind the, the question, how many disciples can you fit into a Honda? Well, the, the answer is already being given to us here. It's, it's 120 because they were all in one accord. Okay. I, I just had to throw that out there. I... It was just too, it was just sitting there, you know. I just had to say it. I just, forgive me, please, Lord. I just had to say that. Okay. <laughs> All right, enough of that. <laughs> I've got to lighten it here because it's going to get tough here. Because, you know, because I'm sure that, that there were these deep tensions. Listen, there were these deep tensions among the disciples. Uh, yeah. There were, I mean, there really were. I mean, in, in particular, the apostles. You know, there were 120, but there were 12 apostles, of course. And the one that was kind of flying under the radar for about three and a half years was Judas Iscariot. Everybody trusted him, and he was a thief. 
But among themselves, they were having all kinds of tensions, and uh, that, especially after the death of Jesus. I mean, they had been scattered in fear after the Passover supper that same night that Jesus had to wash their feet because they evidently didn't want to wash each, wash each other's feet. It was Jesus. He was, you know, he was the one that got down and, and washed their feet. Two of them wanted the best seats in the kingdom, as I mentioned before, prompting the others to be greatly displeased, which is in other words, I wish we could kill these guys, but they're our brothers, you know. And Jesus, at that point in time, had to remind them all that uh, in, in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus called them to Himself and He said to them, You know that those who are, are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their, great, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus had to correct His disciples, His apostles, many, many times. Can you imagine after Peter himself, you know, would, would be the one to stand at that point of, of Jesus questioning them and saying, who do men think that I am? And then he says to them, ask them, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who stands up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, you know, flesh has not given this to you. The Holy Spirit. And not long after this, does Jesus then have to say to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan? I guess that should encourage us all. <laughs> These tensions couldn't be resolved until they were together on their knees, fully open to the Lord and fully open to each other. It was then that the Holy Spirit could be given and poured out upon them. They needed to come together in that one accord, in that way of, of receiving this together, of, of seeking the Lord together, of doing it in one heart, with one mind, with one soul, with one purpose. And we find out then later, as in Acts chapter 4, we'll see in verses 32 and 33, that they, that they got it. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That's the way God wants it. You see, for whatever it's worth, the disciples, of course, the apostles, they were Jewish. They had a Jewish mindset. They grew up with a Jewish mindset. And it's always been said that when you have two rabbis, you have three opinions. But now it's not to be that way. The multitude, as it says here in Acts 4, as we'll study much later, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Why? Because they were in that unity of one mind and one soul. It is the Holy Spirit, and I mentioned this the first week that we started our study, two weeks ago, that we started our study in the Gospel, uh, I should say in the book of Acts, that, that, uh, that, this, that the Spirit was given for unity. 
It is the Holy Spirit that unites us as a body of believers. And we ought to meditate upon that thought when we look at some of the tensions that we may be facing amongst ourselves in the church. And so the foundation for the first church was prayer. The foundation for the first church, the early church, the, the, the very birth of the church, the foundation was prayer. But that hasn't changed. It shouldn't change. It should always be prayer. It was a praying church and we need to be a praying church. I, I, would, I have to interject here in a personal thought. I would much rather see that we're a praying church. I know that you pray. I know that, you know, in general, I know that you pray at least three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, supper. I know that. But is that all that God wants of us? I know that if I say we're going to have a prayer meeting, you know that the prayer meeting in most churches is the least attended service ever? Or that when we offer prayer before services or any time that we can offer prayer for missionaries or whatever, it's the least attended service? I know that people are praying. I know people will tell me, oh, you know, I'm praying for you. I said, praise the Lord. Keep it up. I'm praying for you too. But sometimes I just want to see that. Because it's a discipline. And it's one that we can at times lose. Well, let me just say that we lose ground. We shouldn't lose ground, but if we do lose ground, let's catch up. Let's catch up on our ground in prayer. The power of the church would come from the prayers of God's people. It, it, it always has and it always will. This tells us that those gathered in that upper room weren't sitting around idle. They weren't just sitting around, you know, talking about uh, the Super Bowl. Well, that's tomorrow, isn't it? Okay. Well, we wouldn't have to worry then. They were constantly in prayer. As they, when they were together, they were praying. They were waiting on the Lord. It may be that everyone was praying because it was the first time that... And I want you to note this. It could be that they were praying because it was the first time that they had truly been removed from Jesus physically. And the only way to communicate with Him from that point on was through prayer. It was also another point of obedience. What was it that Jesus taught them all the time? Well, they even asked once, didn't they? Lord, teach us to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. You see, Jesus, Jesus wasn't around and said, Are you praying? Are you praying? He was praying. And they saw him pray. And when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. The very fact that they mentioned, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught, is, is, is telling us that prayer is a discipline that is taught, but it is also a discipline that needs to be continued. Lord, teach us to pray. In Luke chapter 18, just a few chapters later, that Jesus spoke to them a parable that tells us that men also ought to pray and not lose heart. Men ought to pray and not lose heart. 
So it isn't just a matter of teaching to pray. You know, the, 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 the best way to learn how to pray is to pray. One great evangelist uh, preacher once said that, you know. The, the, the way to learn to pray is to pray. Want to be a better prayer warrior than pray. Wise indeed was the person who said, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Courage is fear that has said its prayers. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, who, by the way, was more than likely one of the 120 in the Honda. Jude would conclude his letter to the church, near, nearly conclude it, <laughs> verses 20 and 21, when he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Everything built around that, those two verses there. The building up of ourselves in our most holy faith. The keeping of the love of God. The, the looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Everything surrounds the thought that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. And I'm not, you know, here trying to set some standard from the from the standpoint of of uh, well, praying in the Holy Spirit is is either in tongues or praying is no praying in the Spirit in the sense that you are in communication, that you are in that that fellowship, that you are in that communion with God and the Spirit, not only in the receiving but in the giving, and not only in the giving but in the receiving of what God wants to say to us about our most holy faith, about keeping ourselves in the love of Christ and of God, about looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they prayed. They were obedient to the Lord. They prayed. And then they remain scripturally based to replace a successor. And, and, and this is the, the last part. This is a long section. I'm going to read the whole section to you. And then we'll go back and look at, at these verses. But verses 15 on, it says, and, and in those days, in that time that they were waiting for the promise of the Father, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, that this really comes through the Holy Spirit. Even though the Spirit hasn't been poured out as, of, as such yet upon the church. But nonetheless, he says this scripture had to be fulfilled. And he links David and David's prophecy toward Judas. Or David's statement in the Psalms toward Judas. And it, it says, he spoke before uh, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And notice here he quotes in verse 17, For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field. And by the way, verses 18 and 19 is Luke's uh, commentary. And Luke says, Now this man, speaking of Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. 
and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. I'm sure you wanted to hear that before dinner. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that, so that field is called in their own language Akeldama, or in some of your translations, Aseldama, uh, C instead of a K. Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And verse 20, now he quotes from the Psalms, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And then he quotes from another psalm, let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. A question was asked of some young children in vacation Bible school regarding the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. The question was, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? Without hesitation, a seven-year-old boy named Kenny responded, I know, it was Judas the scariest. That was pretty scary, the things that Judas did, wasn't it? Well, there was a dilemma among the, among the apostles in that, in that of the twelve chosen by Jesus, one of them had perished and had gone to his own place. That, that's kind of an ominous statement to begin with. He had gone to his own place. It, it is, in effect, saying, you know, he made his own place by the things that he did, and that's where he ended up. He is described as well in Scripture as the son of perdition, which is a phrase that is often used of, of Antichrist and even of, of Satan. That, that's a, that, that tells us all about Judas, doesn't it? But nonetheless, there was a void of one that may have prompted Peter to remember a promise that Jesus had given them back in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew records this promise in verse 28 when he, said, when he records, So Jesus said to them, listen carefully, He said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now certainly Judas wouldn't be sitting on one of those twelve thrones. Consider then what John would write in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, verses, well, verse 14, John says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
I don't believe that the name of Judas Iscariot would be on one of those 12 foundations. And so we, find, we now find Peter taking a, a natural leadership role among the disciples as he had during the earthly ministry of Jesus. But I, but I want to say that there is a wisdom here shown by Peter in this speech that hadn't been heard before. Because he points out that Judas didn't ruin God's plans. In fact, what he says is that he fulfilled them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16, and by the way, uh, if you do a very good study about this, this is the, this is the first time that, Ju- that uh, Peter actually quotes from Scripture. But in verse 16, he says, Men and brethren, this Scripture had to be fulfilled. So it wasn't as if Judas was destroying or ruining God's plan. He said this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now only the wise and the mature have this kind of vision when evil occurs. To be able to say, to, you know, to look beyond what is happening or to look beyond the evil that is occurring and then to say, you know what? God's in control here. God knows what's going on. This is not a surprise to God. And he knows that it's in Scripture. It, and, and, he, and, and so, uh, you know, there are some people. Well, by the way, first of all, Luke uh, draws attention parenthetically as, as to how Jesus died. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I think we need to cover, with this, cover this too. Uh, some, some people have tried to point out a contradiction as to how Jesus, uh, Judas died by contrasting two statements. The first statement is in Matthew 27, verse 5, where it says that, uh, that Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went and hanged himself. So they say, well, see, one, uh, one, one, one writer or one account says he hang, hanged himself, but then in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it says, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Well, Matthew's account tells us that Judas hanged himself, but apparently he failed in his attempt and, and, and was killed by the impact of falling from his, you know, uh, makeshift gallows. Not hard to understand that. One gives us one perspective of, of, of how he goes to kill himself and the other finishes the picture for us. It's not a contradiction. Verse 18 and 19 suggests that Judas died in the same field called Akeldama, or field of blood, called that not only because he spilled his blood there, but also because the field was purchased with blood money given to Judas the betrayer. Well, with all that in mind, then Peter continues to rely on God's word as the foundation is laid to choose a replacement for Judas. He quoted from two passages of Scripture. Now, uh, let, me, let me just interject here that I'm, I'm, I'm going through this uh, because I, I want you to realize that, that there have been those who have said, you know, the, the, you know, the apostles meant well. The apostles meant well, and, and so they, 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 they knew that there was a void, and they just, you know, in their own efforts were trying to fill that void. But, but I want you to look a little deeper, a little closer to what, what is going on here. Because Peter quotes from two passages of Scripture. From Psalm 69, verse 25, where there in Psalm 69, 25 says, Let their dwelling, be, dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. 
and, and, and then Psalm 109, verse 8, where it says that let his days be few and let another take his office. And of course, these, this is not David so much looking down history to say somewhere down the line there's going to be somebody that betrays the Messiah. Uh, it was happening around him and at that time. But how many times do those things that happen have prophetic uh, influences toward a, a, a further or a future or a far fulfillment? And in that particular case, that is what uh, Peter is referring to. Because one of those psalms dealt with removal and the other dealt with replacement. And this is one reason why we find that, that Peter now is, is quoting here these scriptures. And we need to take note that this wasn't the wisdom of man at work, but it was a scriptural principle that was at work. Because their desire, and listen carefully, their desire was for God's will. Their desire was for God's will. They would replace Judas because they believed it was what Jesus wanted, not because it was what they wanted. He called the twelve. He didn't call the eleven. He called the twelve. Qualifications then are given by us, uh, by, by Peter here for us in verses 21 uh, through 23, where it says, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, because they were certainly, you know, those 11 that remained were certainly in this particular number, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. Out of the many disciples that had followed it narrowed it down to two people. And because the Holy Spirit had not been poured out upon them just yet, did not mean that the Lord had left them without guidance. They knew what to do from the Word of God. Folks, listen carefully. Even when we don't feel the Holy Spirit, are you, are you, are you listening to what I'm saying? Even when you don't feel the Holy Spirit, the voice of God is still firmly established in His Word. The qualifications were, were just, you can call it blessed common sense, sanctified common sense as it were. But whoever would replace Judas had to be one who had been with him since the baptism of John, stayed with him through the ministry of Jesus, and had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Now this doesn't answer everything, I know, but, but it narrowed it down. It narrowed it down to two, and remember that the main job of the new apostle was simply to become a witness with the rest of them of the resurrection. And in verses 24 to 26, notice what else they did. And they prayed. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who, knows, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. To take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now we ought not to overlook the fact that they prayed first. Let's not overlook that fact. They prayed. And that was what they were already doing anyway, so they prayed. And then they did what Jesus did. Listen carefully. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it tells us now it came to pass in those days that he went out to, to the mountain to pray. 
and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, they prayed. They thought that the number twelve was significant to Jesus. And so they felt the need to fill that void. Now, they also cast lots. They also cast lots. And this is what bothers many people. They cast lots. Some would say they were rolling the dice. You know, or whatever else. You know, the use of Urim and Thummim, of course, going back to the, the Old Testament and the, and the priest, the high priest, and the, the stones that he had in his Urim and Thummim. And, and you know, they cast lots. Yet, but, but, but understand this. Their reliance on the Lord has to be noted. Their reliance on the Lord has to be noted. They were not yet filled. Remember, they were not yet filled with the Holy Spirit as they would be soon, but they still chose a method that would make them rely upon God. It was a method, not that they were relying upon you know, themselves. They were doing a, using a method where they could rely upon God. How do we know this? Because in Proverbs 16, verse 33, it says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. Now, folks, this may have been an imperfect way to discern the will of God. But it was much better than the way some Christians try to discern the will of God today. Are you listening to me? Relying on emotions, relying on feelings, relying on circumstances, relying on desires, sometimes not good desires, but relying on desires and the like. The lot, folks, the lot fell on Matthias. And we wonder, was he the right man for the job? Some strongly insist that he was the wrong choice and that the office should have been reserved for Paul. Well, we know that we read nothing more about Matthias. But because of this, we mustn't assume that he was a loser as an apostle. We mustn't uh, assume that he was a dud of an apostle. Consider the fact that by what the disciples did derailed a victory for Satan. Just listen for a moment. Jesus picked 12, but one came up short and defeated Jesus' desire for 12. Really? And so, with their hearts seeking after God, they chose to replace the one who had faltered, the one who had perished. Now concerning Paul, this is how Paul considered himself. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, Paul says this, Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. He didn't seem to object anywhere if you read through the letters of Paul when he does call himself an apostle of the Lord. He didn't seem to object anywhere to the selection of Matthias. Now, the question is, is the twelfth apostle Paul or Matthias? I don't know. 
They wanted the Lord to guide their decision, and so, and so do we. We have the Spirit, we have the Word, and we are to pray. How many wrong decisions have we made because we haven't utilized everything that the Lord has given and always given to us and has already given to us? Aren't there sometimes that we make certain decisions by those other things, by the circumstances, by the, by the, uh, uh, the feelings, emotions, and stuff? And then we say, oh, man, what was I, what was I thinking? <laughs> we find ourselves there sometimes. But look at the disciples here as we close here today. The disciples were in obedience. The disciples were in fellowship. The disciples were in prayer. They were in the Word. They wanted to do God's will. And they used that blessed or sanctified common sense by doing what Jesus would do. What they did more than anything else was rely upon God. They relied upon God. Now, if you believe that Paul is the 12th apostle, praise the Lord. He's a good one. I can tell you that right now. Paul's a good apostle, isn't he? But consider at least what the disciples were doing in replacing Judas. They did it by scripture. They did it by prayer. They did it by relying upon God. I leave you with a proverb that everyone should know. Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I don't believe they were leaning on their own understanding. They were trusting the Lord. And whether we hear of Matthias again or not, we can consider him the apostle that just witnessed Jesus more than he witnessed himself. We never hear of him again, but that's okay. The important thing is that just around the corner, the Spirit's coming. For us, the Spirit's already here. We have everything that we need now to rely upon the Lord. But are we praying as the apostles prayed? Are we obedient as the apostles were obedient? Are we in the Word as the apostles were in the Word. Let's pray.